the struggle you are in today is developing the strength you need for tomorrow. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, most unthinkable, and most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Welcome to Terrible People Doing Terrible Things. I'm Laura, and I'm a true crime horror addict who enjoys researching dark and twisted stories. And I'm Amanda, and I'm a licensed psychologist who enjoys studying the worst of humanity. If you enjoy reading about serial killers, cults, unsolved murders, and nuns, and learning about the psychology of narcissists, necrophilia, and fetishistic disorder, then check us out at Terrible People Doing Terrible Things, available on all major podcast apps. Now, on this episode of The Jury Room, it's going to be a little bit different. I do have an award-winning author here with us today. Sergeant Donna Brown, Tallahassee Police Department, retired, 26 years of service. Thank you. Glad to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad to have you. And... Uh, with that being said, we do have your book. Uh, <clears throat> if you would like to plug it, go ahead. <laughs> um, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's actually uh, a series. Well, there's two books in the series now. They're called Behind and Beyond the Badge. It's volume one and volume two. And um, they're stories, individual stories about people who are actually doing the job of the first responder or have done it. And um, I included firefighters, police officers, our EMS personnel, but I also included our dispatchers, which in some states, they thankfully have been reclassified as first responders um, and uh, some victim advocates and our forensics people. They're really great stories. And I think they're eye-opening for those that have read the books. What story out of volume one or volume two do you feel like has touched your audience the most? That's a kind of a tough question. I've gotten feedback from a, a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, but I would have to say that the main premise for me writing the books was that uh, it wasn't long after the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, Missouri, where predominantly all the media attention given to the law enforcement profession was really negative. And of course, we've kind of come full circle and we're, we're back into that climate. But the premise was that most people see only a badge, and that's kind of where the, the titles of the books come in. Behind and beyond the badge is a real person, mm -hmm. and most people forget that. And the, the purpose of the stories is to, while they talk about why they wanted to do the job, why they do the job, the hard parts, the great parts, it also talks about the effects that it can have on them and on their families. So I'd have to say in volume two, the story about Sergeant uh, Scott Angulo kind of touches on all of those things. 
Thank you for that introduction to Scott. Now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play a clip from your book. Sergeant Scott Angulo, Tallahassee Police Department, active duty, 16 years of service. It's a unique situation. It's certainly not something that happens every single day. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, he's at home with his family getting ready to go work a Florida State University home football game, which we were required to do. we got to provide security for those big events. I walked into the house to get ready because I had to work the game. Staffing is huge for these games, and all area law enforcement agencies have to provide personnel for security and traffic details. I put my uniform on the bed and gathered my badge and name tag to put on it. About that time, my son came into the room and said he saw two deputy cars drive down the road. I looked up and saw their vehicles parked near a house that had frequent problems. I thought it was just a continuation of those issues. I turned to go back to what I was doing when I heard gunshots. I then remembered an intelligence bulletin concerning a subject that lived up that road making threats to harm police officers. I looked at my wife and she called the kids, ages 9, 7, and 5, to her. I said they needed to go into the bathroom with mommy because I had to go to work. I went to the safe and got my pistol and rifle out. My rifle magazines were already in my car. As I ran out the door, it hit me that other officers and deputies may not recognize me as a law enforcement officer, as I had not yet put on my uniform. I then grabbed my exterior vest carrier and put it on. That would identify me as the police. Elizabeth, my wife, came out of the bathroom and helped me strap that on as I put my handgun on my belt. The whole time I was getting my gear on, I heard gunshots, several of them. As I approached the door, I saw a fire truck arrive. It appeared to immediately take the gunfire. The firefighters jumped out of it and ran into a ditch and up the road out of sight. I ran to my car and grabbed three rifle magazines and my police radio. I then started toward the sound of gunshots. As I moved along the west side of the road, I could hear occasional shots. It was then that I saw the first deputy. He was exhausted. He had been engaged in a gun battle with the suspect for a few minutes by now. He was obviously hurt. I called to him and raised my arm so that he could see the word police on my vest. I yelled, I'm with you, brother. Where is he? He nodded and motioned up the road. He was having trouble breathing. I then called him over to me. As he moved, I covered him. I didn't see anyone, but did see a house on fire, an auto glass from a bullet-ridden car in the roadway. Once the deputy got to me, I asked if he was okay. He said he had been shot in the back. I saw the hole in his shirt, but thankfully he was wearing his bulletproof vest. I tried to reassure him that he was going to be okay. I really wasn't sure, as I didn't know how this was going to play out or end. I asked him for a description, which he gave me. I started trying to see if I could find the shooter. After a while, I don't know how long, time was really warped. I became aware of radio traffic about people coming to the area. I got on the radio to let them know I was on the scene. The descriptions were all over the place, male, female, uncertain on race. I was concerned there may be more than one shooter. The dispatcher advised that the suspect was looking into the deputy's car. I moved out toward the roadway to see if I could see the suspect and saw the car but no person. I moved back toward cover with the shot deputy. And then I saw the suspect for the first time, a white male. He came out between two vehicles and fired at me. 
I tried to fire back, but my rifle only made a clicking sound. My training clicked in. I attempted to clear the malfunction. The charging handle felt bogged down. I then removed the magazine and inserted another one as the deputy and I rushed to another cover, falling back to create distance and time. I stopped at a tree and came back on target. I looked around, expecting the shooter to emerge from around the corner of the house, but he didn't. I then had a feeling he might try to flank or attack me from the side through the backyard of a house. The only cover I had here was a privacy fence with gaps in it. The wounded deputy and I then moved to the corner of the neighbor's house. The deputy looked in the direction where we had seen the suspect while I searched to see if he was flanking us. I continued to check my rifle to make sure it wasn't still inoperable. I had a feeling of determination and focus unlike I've ever had before. I don't remember very many specific thoughts other than I had to win this. He hurt one of us. He tried to kill us. I then heard a vehicle come into the area and recognized it was another TPD officer. I tried to tell him I had just seen the suspect in the direction he was headed. Just then, I heard three gunshots from the area where I last saw the guy. I knew where he was. As I moved from cover to go that way, I saw movement. It was the shooter looking around the corner. I stopped and stepped back to the corner of a house. I saw him peek again, this time lower. He then came out and moved laterally toward a tree. Gunshots were exchanged between the suspect and myself, and he fell. About a minute later, I was glad to see the other TPD officer was okay. The two of us converged on the suspect and attempted to render aid. However, a paramedic who had arrived on scene declared him dead. I looked around and saw the chaotic scene. My training again kicked in. I saw people arriving and walking all over the crime scene. I asked who had crime scene tape and then started directing tape to be put up. I was explaining what had happened to those in charge of the investigation. I then realized that my rifle and I were physical evidence, so I stepped aside and let those who had arrived do their jobs. From there, everything seemed very surreal. Thinking back, it still feels like it was a bad dream. Since the crime scene had become the house across the street, I walked back to my yard to tell my family I was okay and that I was in for a long day. Scott didn't realize it at the beginning, but as this all unfolded and at the end, his wife and kids actually witnessed all that happen. They have a big picture window. And life was never the same for especially the kids, and they eventually had to sell the house and move from the neighborhood. It was just uh, too much of a stressor for the kids. So like I said, that's kind of an out there scenario. Those mm -hmm. kinds of things do happen, but that's certainly not an everyday situation. But he also is very open about it. He talks about, you know, how he felt about having to take a life. And I think people now especially think that that's just kind of commonplace and cops don't give a second thought to, to it, right? A second thought, correct, about taking a life. And that's really just not true at all. Uh, there's also a part in Scott's story where he brought up. Now, he doesn't mention names, but I'm under the assumption that he was a part of the Jane Winston investigation. Is that correct? The Janus Winston investigation, yes. yes. That's, that is the investigation that he speaks about in, the, in his story. Were you able to... 
I know that a lot of those feelings weren't included into the story, but were you able to get more out of him on a more of a personal note on that subject? Or was that something that he really didn't want to talk about? Well, he actually does talk about it. He just doesn't actually name the person. And it it really did take its toll professionally. And Mm -hmm. I think it really bothered him personally that people thought he was this total uncaring individual and that's just really not the truth and i think if you read the story you can really get that from him and that was you know one of the one of the stories that touched me the most was uh was scott's story just for the simple fact of you know that that his family did witness you know him you know actually killing somebody and that you know, not only is he now has that burden, but now he has the burden of, you know, his kids' mental health and his wife's all at the same time. Correct. Correct. And like I said, that's, that's like on a scale of one to 10. I mean, that's a, that's a 10 that like those scenarios don't happen every single day, but it was just something that I, I really wanted to get his story out there sure. because it, it, it is, this is what can happen. Not to say that every day all first responders deal with that kind of stress. This was just on a grander scale. Right. But I mean that, you know, barring into mental health, I mean, you're still dealing with, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you are dealing with, you know, a stressor of even just, you know, with today's climate pulling somebody over, you know, are they going to pull a gun on me? Are they going to shoot me? Are they going to attack me? Are they going to try to fight? You know what I mean? Like that in itself has to be stressful, right? Well, the job itself is stressful as, mm-hmm. as a law enforcement officer. Absolutely. And there's a lot of discussion about training. And while law enforcement officers are trained to look for specific things, they're trained on, you know, how to how to react and and in certain situations, you have to remember that they do have to make that decision within a matter of a second or two. So things don't always work out that way and things are not always black and white. Uh, But more and more emphasis is being put on the mental health aspect for all first responders. And I'm very, very pleased to see that moving forward. And I think that falls into line with that as agencies and the profession as a whole are recognizing the importance of officer wellness, it's mm-hmm. no different than, than anyone else needing to look out for their own personal wellness. But, you know, what officers see and do day in and day out can take its toll. And it is going in line with, you know, more de-escalation training and those types of things. And I think I think overall the professions is going to start moving in a, in a more positive way mm-hmm. when it comes to things like that. Do you feel like there's more pressure now with the climate that we're in because of a, either the media, social media, you know, where everything is information is at your fingertips? I don't know if there's more pressure. I, th- I think that's certainly a change over the years with the technology is Yeah, there's cell phones everywhere. So everyone's taking video, everyone's taking pictures, everybody's recording things. And in the media, and I I blame the media, and that falls into line with social media, 
is there may be a 15 minute video clip of an incident. But what the media shows is a 10 or 15 second clip of it. Doesn't tell you what led up to that or what happened afterwards. And I, I think that's very unfair to the profession as a whole. And it's very unfair to the citizens. Right. I, I'm all for transparency and accountability, but I think that also goes with the media personnel as well. Right. And that's, you know, one of the, the situations that I have a hard time struggling with, with at least with the media is you have, now we're not, I'm not saying that every everybody who puts on a badge or who's a first responder is a good human being. That's just not possible. Right. But that one person paints the whole picture for everybody. Like you said, in that 10 to 15 second video, you know, IE you have the Ferguson situation, um, you know, and multiple others that are, are creating this, this toxic environment to where as, as a human being wearing that badge, you're not sure if you can sit somewhere without, you know, your food being spit in or, you know, getting jumped from behind or whatever the case is. You know what I mean? That's, that's sadly very true. And matter of fact, in my hometown here just two nights ago, uh, a shooting incident occurred at a deputy's house. He was off duty. He was home. And in my community, both the police department and the sheriff's department, they have take-home cars. So a lot of these people have marked units sitting in their driveway Mm -hmm. and someone drove by and shot up his patrol car, his personal cars and actually shot into the house. And that's, that's so unnecessary. Well, and it's just, just because of the job he does. It's, it's not that he had anything to do with any incident that occurred. Right. And, and, and that's, there's over 800,000 law enforcement officers in the United States alone. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of those people are good cops, but they're good people as well. Their goal is they want their communities to be safe. They're raising their own families in in these communities. They want them to be safe for everybody. Are there people who tarnish the badge and the oath they took? Absolutely. It's a small minority, but I could actually say that with any other profession. Um, There's people who shouldn't be attorneys, who shouldn't be physicians, who shouldn't be accountants. It's just those professions don't have people following everywhere with a video camera. Right. And that's, you know, that's part of the problem being that you, you know, that people in law enforcement or, you know, any kind of first responder job, they have that firsthand knowledge or, you know, that firsthand account with the general public. And of course, with there being not just cell phones, but you have cameras everywhere now. So any CC, you know, any CC footage anywhere gets dragged out. And, you know, if that cop, cop or whatever looked wrong or, you know, you know, given the information that they had makes the wrong decision. Now, all of a sudden they're painting the picture for everybody. And that's, you know, that's unfair. Well, and that's why I encourage people and most don't take me up on it, but I, if you truly want to know more about the profession or you truly believe that the profession needs to be changed, I encourage you to go to your local law enforcement agency, 
Most of them have a Citizens Police Academy. Mm-hmm. Most of them, well, I realize this is probably pre-COVID, uh, but most of them have ride-alongs where you can sign up to actually ride a shift with an officer. And I encourage people not just to pick the day shift. Right. You know, try all three. Do an afternoon shift. Do a midnight shift. It'll actually give them a different viewpoint of their own com- community. Sure. It, it takes on a whole different look on, on the, the different shifts and, and try to educate yourself. And I'm all for like I, with the books, I jump at every speaking engagement that I'm asked to do mm-hmm. because I really think that these types of conversations are important and need to be had. And, and again, that ties back in, into the books Sure. and, and the books have kind of taken on a life of their own. I I've had a police explorer come up to me and said he'd read the book and he thanked me for it. He said he really wants to be a law enforcement officer. And this was the first book. And I thought that was volume one that he read that actually gave him true insight as to what it might be like to do the job. I had an officer, a veteran who'd been doing the job over 20 years, contact me and tell me that he and his wife read volume two together mm-hmm. or at the same time. And when they were done, she actually told him, she said, I thought we really had a great relationship with great communications. And she said, but I reading the book, I really didn't realize what law enforcement officers go through, what they feel, how they feel. And he told me, he said, that's opened up a whole new line of communication for him. I, I had a 75 year old woman come up to me and say, I've always supported law enforcement, she says, but I've never given it a two-second thought that there was a real person behind the badge. And she said that just gave her a whole different perspective. And I've had some people who aren't fans of law enforcement who have read the books. And and it may not have changed their minds, but it did kind of open them and give them a different perspective. And that's kind of become the, the, the mantra of my books is – they don't have the power to change minds, but perhaps by offering a different perspective, they can open them. And uh, if I can let the light bulb come on for one person, I'll consider the books a success for sure. Right. And I'm sure right now with, you know, speaking engagements, you're not getting, you know, necessarily all positive. There has to be that, you know, combativeness to people, you know, like, oh, you're, you know, you're a cop, you're a bad person. Do you get that quite a bit or has, is it like a, a kind of more of a mixed response? It, it, it's mixed. And actually I welcome that. I do want to hear how they feel and why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. And often it's some I've had, you know, personal experiences with law enforcement that haven't been good. Mm-hmm. And, and we can talk about that. A lot of it, when when we really get down to it, it's what they've seen or read. And again, that goes back to the media, to social media. And like I said, I want to have those conversations. You know, tell me how you feel. What is it you don't understand? What do you want to know? And a lot of it, like, you know, use of force. Mm -hmm. Why didn't the officer just shoot him in the leg? Why didn't the officer just shoot him in the hand? Or why did he shoot somebody that just had a knife? And that's part of most citizens police academies is they will often explain what's called the use of force matrix. And it's sometimes, yes, you jump, you jump from ground zero to deadly force, but there's, there's other levels in there. 
and it is dependent on the person's actions and compliance or non-compliance. And that's where your tasers, your pepper spray, and those types of things come into play. And if you really look at the use of force matrix, you know, deadly force is obviously the last resort type of thing. Right. Um, and that and that also comes back to, you know, the general public giving that trust to somebody who wears a badge, you know, that that's a lot, you know, that's a fast, very fast decision to make. That's split second life or death for the both people. And, Correct. and that's, you know, that's a hard reality of it is, is that most people, you know, not all, but most people in the general public aren't equipped or don't have the knowledge to be able to make that split second decision between, okay, am I, you know, am I going to live or am I going to die or are they going to live or are they going to die? Right. Well, you know, and that gets into, and I know it's a very sensitive topic for people, but compliance, there, there's a, a video I saw a few weeks ago and it was posted by uh, a gentleman who's, who's pretty well known in the field of training in law enforcement. And it was about a two-minute video, and it was two officers who were taking a young black male into custody from a traffic stop, mm-hmm. and he was resisting. But then what he, when you see that short video, you're like, you know, my gosh, what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. But then he played the entire, and it's almost like a 20-minute video. Right. And why he was pulled over. And it shows 15 minutes of him refusing to get out of the car. It includes the officer calling his supervisor. And literally, the officers are begging him to get out of the car. Right. And he's just absolutely refusing. And, you know, then he calls his mom, who comes to the scene, and she jumps all over him, you know, like, Get out of the car. You know, I mean, it's just that paints the whole story. But if you just see that one or two minute clip of the video, it's a whole different perspective. Which, you know, most people, because the media is, you know, whether it be social media, you know, the media, they're not going to play that 20 minutes. Of it's, course not. it's not sensational. It's, you know, that's um, not. You know, it doesn't paint that that sensation of, oh, my God, all cops are bad, you know. And so, of course, they're not going to paint, you know, the picture of, well, you know, the cops were extremely patient with this, you know, with this part. But yet he still hasn't complied. You know, I've been pulled over, you know, I'm, you know, and I've never, you know, had any trouble ever. You know what I mean? I've never dealt. I've never been in trouble either, but. You know, it's one of those things that if you just do as you're told, you know, it makes everybody's life a lot easier. Correct. Um, and, and not to get into specific cases, but one that just stands out to me is the race. I apologize, but I believe his name was Rayshard Jackson. It occurred in Atlanta just before uh, July 4th. And he's intoxicated. He's very friendly with the officers. He knows he's getting ready to get arrested for a uh, DUI and he's jovial. They're getting along and something just changes and he chooses to start fighting. Right. And we're like, you know, if you had just complied, 
gotten in the car. And I tell people this all the time. If you feel you're being stopped for an inappropriate reason, if you feel you're being treated inappropriately, any of those things comply. There are avenues to deal with your complaint, whether it's internal in the police department or if it's the criminal justice system. Um, at least everyone's going home at the end of the day. Right. Now, I know you started you started back in what, like the 1980s, right? Somewhere it was like 88, I want to say? Actually, I, I, well, I graduated from the academy in 1979 and then started the field training officer program in, in the beginning of 1980. Yeah. So, so lots of lots have changed in law enforcement over the years, that's for sure. So compared to like being, you know, what was the temperature when you first, you know, got out of the academy with you know, the general public was, were they more, you know, accepting of law enforcement or was there still that, that tension? Back then, no. Um, there was more of an outward respect mm-hmm. and I'm a firm believer is, you know, it's same thing. I respect the badge, but for me to respect you as the person, you have to earn that. And that goes with how you treat people. And I was kind of trained that you are a guardian first Mm -hmm. and a warrior second. Right. I mean, as a guardian, that I could turn into a warrior in a heartbeat. And I I think that's kind of evolved a little bit um, where maybe there's more of a warrior mentality than the guardian mentality. and I personally, this is all my personal opinion. I think I'd kind of like to see that uh, kind of reverse itself. But, you know, law enforcement, this is, again, my opinion, law enforcement has become the universal dumping ground, I think, for everybody. Sure. Uh, you know, we, and these are all true. Law enforcement gets called to an individual's home in the morning because they can't get their child to go to school. Well, not sure how or why that's a law enforcement issue, but okay, we're here. And within a five minute conversation with the child, the officer learns that the child's being bullied in school. Mm-hmm. So you wonder, well, why didn't the parent know this? Why couldn't the parent talk to their child and, and figure this out? No, it took a law enforcement officer to do that. Or, you know, more and more you see officers are getting called to even elementary schools for an unruly eight year old child. That didn't happen when I was in school right. and didn't happen when I first started. But I think you have people are afraid. If I touch this child, I'm going to get sued. And honestly, if you look at billboards in my town anyway, at almost every intersection and in the evening news, almost every other commercial, it's for what? It's for a personal injury attorney. Right. And so I think society has just kind of taken that route. So we're not going to deal with it. We're just called law enforcement and law enforcement's open 24 seven. Right. That's it. Yeah. You know, and and when you talk about climate, you know, when I started at my agency, I was one of only five women. Mm -hmm. Honestly, there was more, it was tougher to break in as a female uh, (laughs) at that time. Sure. Um, Of course. I had to earn, every one of us had to earn the respect of the community. You know, we were, an anomaly and and thankfully that has all changed as well more or less i mean back and this is 
this isn't even about being sexist, but back in, you know, back in the eighties, you know, not that, you know, I was around in the eighties, but that I know, you know, it was a boys club at that point, you know, it was, you had to, you know, it wasn't until, when would you say that it became more acceptable, acceptable for females to be in law enforcement? Oh, I I think that it, it, it didn't take long for us to be accepted. Sure. And I can only speak for my community. And probably a year and a half or two years after I was hired, our agency really started hiring more women. Mm-hmm. And we just became, you know, not commonplace, but it really didn't matter anymore who showed up, whether it was a male or female or, or whatever. It was it was a police officer. Um, and I'm sure there's, there's female officers back from my day that can tell same similar stories, I'm sure in their community. And I'm sure as the years have progressed, you know, progressed when you first started, you know, as a law enforcement agent, when you would go out on calls, would you get harassed or would they kind of like ignore you? Well, I, I will tell this one story. Um, I was dispatched to a bar fight at one of our local bars. And when I pulled into the parking lot, the victim was met me in the parking lot and he had a bloody nose and a small cut over his eye. The other party had already left the scene. So he begins to tell me his story and I'm listening. And I'm, I'm taking my notes and going to take the report for him. And a few minutes later, my backup officer arrived and it happened to be a male officer. And this individual stopped talking to me and walked over to the other officer and began retelling the story. And the officer said, sir, you need to go back to that officer and let her finish getting the information so she can take the report and we'll see what we can do about locating the other person or, you know, solving the situation here. He goes, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to a real police officer. Right. And I just stood there. I didn't say anything. And the other officer said, sir, she is a real police officer. So you can either talk to her or you obviously don't want to talk to an officer and we'll just go ahead and leave. And he's like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, yes, sir, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, sure. there were those types of situations. Uh, I was actually incredibly blessed. The people that I worked with, the guys that I worked with, were very supportive for the most part. I mean, there were a few that, you know, I pretty much had to earn their respect, which I I'm good with, but uh, there there were some that really understood how just difficult it, it, it could have been for us. So being that you were in law enforcement for, you were, you said 26 years, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Which, what are the different parts that you have worked in? Like the different departments, I guess would be. Okay. Um, I started out like most people do. I started working the streets, meaning you answered calls for service. I became a field training officer eventually after a couple of years and started training new officers. Then I was moved to our department's training section where we were responsible for the training for the entire department. Mm -hmm. And we actually did some training out at the law enforcement academy. I was promoted to sergeant when I was in the training unit and I went back to the streets for several more years. I became a field training sergeant 
So I had a squad of training officers and new recruits. And then I was moved into the criminal investigation division. And in there, I supervised a property crimes unit, spent a couple of years in our sex crimes unit, and then spent 10 years supervising our homicide unit. And I was kind of proud. I was the first woman to do that. And to my understanding, I'm still the only woman at our agency that supervised the homicide unit. So what? And then I retired shortly after that. In 2006, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, what, what was your favorite part of that different, the different departments? Like which one was your favorite? I really, I, I enjoyed every area I worked in. Mm-hmm. And I, again, my entire career, I really worked with some great people. And I obviously think that that had a big role into how much I liked my job. Sure. I loved training new officers. I loved training, period. And while I talk about the Citizens Police Academy, part of, of my job, even when I was in homicide, I taught a block in the Citizens Police Academy from the time our agency started it. And I did every single class until I retired. So I really enjoyed the the training aspect. I enjoyed the public speaking aspect. Mm -hmm. Crime wise, I guess I would have to say investigative wise, probably my 10 years in homicide were my favorite for just a whole lot of different reasons, but probably my most challenging, but also my favorite. Now, what is it like for an investigation in homicide? Like from the start to finish, if you could explain it for somebody who has no knowledge of how an investigation works. Sure. Generally, and of course it can happen different ways, but generally it starts with the initial response from the patrol officer. They get there. Um, Let's say in this case, it's a shooting Mm -hmm. and they've got, one person that's deceased from what appears to be a gunshot wound or whatever it it happens to be. They secure the crime scene. That's where you see all the the yellow crime scene tape. Obviously there are supervisors there. And in our agency, the crime scene unit forensics were called out. And especially if it was after hours, if it was after five o'clock, I always had one homicide detective who was on call. They were called first for anything that happened after 5 p.m. until the following morning at 8 a.m. And I was called for all homicides and any other questionable death. So I would respond, forensics would respond, the detective would respond. And this is another reason why I, I call the group of people that I write about my village of first responders because Oftentimes on a homicide, uh, there could be, the fire department could be there, EMS could be there, victim advocate could be there, obviously you have forensics, you have, you know, so it, it takes, it takes a whole team to do this. It's not at all what television depicts by any means. And sometimes cases are solved pretty quickly. Sometimes, as you know, they can go on for a quite some time and sadly some remain unsolved i'd like to think and i'm an avid reader as well that when we got to the scene we were basically at the last chapter and it was our job to go back and piece together the previous 
20 chapters or 30 chapters or who knows it could have been a short story but that was our job to do that hello we are you should have ghosted a true crime online dating podcast i'm shana and i love true crime wine and i met my husband online i'm liz and i'm single and exploring online dating we're ex coworkers who became best friends through our obsession with true crime podcasts and decided we should make one of our own. You Should Have Ghosted is a podcast that we hope will enlighten people to the dark side of online dating and shine a light on serious issues with accountability in the dating app world. Join us for dark stories and cringy content. See you next Tuesday. First and foremost, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. I hope you're enjoying Donna Brown's story so far. I know I did. I enjoyed listening to her and talking. And there's a lot of different point of views out there on law enforcement. And in no way, shape, or form is anyone condoning the actions of a few. But the actions of a few should not dictate the treatment of hundreds of thousands of other officers out there who risk their lives on a daily basis with especially now during the pandemic i just want to thank all the first responders frontline workers everybody out there who is fighting the good fight during what has become one of the worst times in modern history that anybody has seen so i just want to say thank you now today's missing person case uh comes directly from the fbi website i'll link to it down below make sure you go click on it and If you have any information, please share that information with them. Hopefully we can bring some, bring some answers for their family. Today's missing person is Sonny Sarmak. Forgive me if I pronounced that wrong, but I just wanted to bring some light to this story. Her date of birth was February 23rd, 2001. Her place of birth was McCook, Nebraska. She has brown hair and blue eyes. She was 5'7 at her time of disappearance. She weighed approximately 183 pounds when she disappeared. She was Caucasian female. She has a tattoo on her left shoulder of a feather with the letters fly. She also has a tattoo on her right ankle of a tribal son in red ink. She has multiple scars on her body to include the rectangular scar on the back of her right shoulder, a small square-shaped scar in the middle of her upper forehead, scarring on one of her ankles and shin from a bike pedal, scars from chicken pox on her face, a scar on her left hand and at the bottom of her thumb and forefinger, and cuts on her arm. On April 20th, 2009, Sunny left from Trenton, Nebraska with a male individual, allegedly for a trip to Omaha, Nebraska. She has not been seen or heard from since. She was last seen wearing denim shorts and a black tank top. She also had in her possession a pair of jeans and a hoodie. Sunny was last seen in a 2004 white Ford Explorer bearing the license plate HGJ341. If anyone out there has any tips on this case, Please submit them to the FBI Omaha Division. You can call them at 402-493-8688.
That's 402-493-8688. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I know it's hard to be cheerful right now, especially with the state of of the world, but make sure you're celebrating, you know, the holidays, at least with the, the ones closest to you, your loved ones. I don't really have any stories for you guys today. Didn't really find too many interesting headlines, more or less just wanted to focus in on the on the book and Donna and, and her stories. So with that being said, we'll get back to the interview. But first, make sure you go and check out all the shows that I have featured today. Uh, they're all great creators, and they're just out there trying to make a name for themselves. And so make sure you go and like, you know, follow them, show them some love. But we will get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. And as always, make sure you go and like and subscribe and leave a review. As always, I will leave links for forms below. If you want to get in direct contact with me, go ahead and click on those links, fill them out. Let me know what you guys think. There will be a form for today's episode, a general case suggestion form, and a missing person case form. So make sure you fill those out. Go leave a review on iTunes. I'm on all major podcasting platforms, but I do want to say thank you to all the new listeners out there, all the ones that are sticking around. I appreciate you guys. I've been getting some interesting countries out there, so pretty soon I'm going to compile a list of, of all the different places that you guys have listened to me from, and I just, you know, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome to see, so... Thank you, and we will get back to it. Hello, one and all, to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. <laughs> Hello, who's this? Let's just start at the kids, okay? Who would win in a steel cage match between Andy Crane, Andy Peters versus Nilby Cannon and Tommy Boyd? Sounds like a scratchy robot chicken. 12 inch BA Barackers dolls. That you do, didn't really, didn't you really do go like a 12 incher. <sighs> Here we go. Uh, it worked how I think it's going to work. It's going to be bang average. Oh, I'm just, I'm just over it now. Now, like you said, you brought up the media, you know, or detective shows, you know, Law and Order, SVU, whatever, wherever they digest that. Do you feel like that hinders law enforcement with, you know, with the impatience that people have with an investigation? I I think in some respects, yes. Especially, let's say we're dealing with a homicide victim's family. Some have this expectation that this is going to be solved very quickly. And, And I've even had some people in the past tell me, well, you know, I know this can be solved quickly. You can get DNA back, you know, within an hour, you know, and it's all from television, right? which is totally unrealistic. I do like when, when NCIS and, and the CSI shows first came out, they really gave some, some attention to the forensic field, which I think was long overdue. Their work is incredibly important and vital for law enforcement, especially in homicide, but in really any other, whether it's a property crime or a sex crime or whatever. And so in that respect, I I was kind of glad they came out. 
the downside of that is no, a lot of the stuff that they, they process evidence and like I said, serology and ballistics, that all takes time. And a lot of a lot of agencies, those types of tests have to be sent off to a state lab, and then you stand in line, you know, because you're not the only right. person or agency who's submitted stuff. So, but I think that's crucial for the law enforcement team, and it's, and that's where our victim advocates really came in a lot and helped as well. Is they could help the family understand the process, and then course they were there for them to help them through the criminal justice process as well so start to finish you know even even if a crime is solved fairly quickly mm-hmm. the criminal justice system as a whole moves pretty slowly um so it it, it can take a while and i and i understand victims frustration it, it's it's not solved quickly right and that's part of what i see some of the frustration with law enforcement comes from is the fact that, you know, an investigation isn't going to be solved in an hour or two or 12 or, you know, a week or whatever the case, whatever their expectations are, it's just not going to be done that way. Right. Well, and, and you take some of these law enforcement involved shootings that mm-hmm. the media that has happened here over the last couple of years. And that is one thing people, people, I don't understand. We have the video. This is what happened. Well, if you want to do a thorough, complete, open and transparent investigation, you have to do it all. So if one person had a video with a cell phone, you can imagine sometimes there's 20 or 30 or whatever. Okay, you've got to go through all that video. Like you said, you have to go through the closed circuit TV uh, video that might be around. You have to actually sit down and interview those people. Uh, any any. Physical evidence, like I said, may have to be sent off the state lab, may have to be analyzed. That doesn't happen quickly. So to, to put a whole investigation together, it is time consuming. And I don't think that people truly understand that. They think that because they've seen a 10-second video, what else is there to investigate? And that's just not how it happens. And I, I try to turn that on people and go, if you were accused of a crime, would you want to go to jail that can alter the rest of your life based on a 10 second video only? And of course, everyone's like, well, no, well, that's no different. So is it, is it a rewarding process when you do solve a case? Oh, absolutely. It is. And, I don't like the word closure, and I think that's used a lot when it comes to homicide investigations that, well, the family can finally have closure when an arrest is made or the person is sentenced. I don't think a person who has lost a loved one in that kind of a scenario that there's ever really closure. Right. I think it answers questions. It may bring them a little more peace of mind, but I I don't. I don't think it gives them closure. That's an interesting take. I guess I've never thought about it like that of, you know, cause you do hear that closure word. It's a buzzword that you hear in, you know, in the news reports, you know, that there really isn't closure, that it's more or less just getting answers. I like that take. Right. Well, and, and I, we had one case here and it took us three years to solve it. It was a homicide. And this also tells you how 
technology has really advanced and, and I think made a positive impact when it comes to physical evidence. On this particular homicide, we had a partial fingerprint that we recovered from the point of entry of, of this location. And we had some other evidence, but the, the, the fingerprint was what was going to identify our suspect. And back at that time, there was not the computerized fingerprinting system that there is to the extent that it is now. The, the partial fingerprint was entered into the national database and we got no hit. And what our forensic technician did, he took it upon himself. He talked to his supervisor and then talked with me. He took a copy, made copies of that partial fingerprint, and he sent it to every single state lab in the country and gave him, obviously, a scenario of the case and, and, and all the facts. And here we are three years later. He gets a phone call from a lab up north. And luckily, the supervisor in that lab required all of their technicians to have two stacks of fingerprints. One was from agencies within that state. The other stack was requests from out-of-state people. And he got to ours, and he was able to identify the person from that print. We located him. He was actually in a prison out west. I sent the investigator out there to talk to him. And the agreement was, and this was all done with the family, the family was very involved, mm -hmm. is he agreed to tell them, or us, he didn't want to talk to the family, but he agreed to give us full disclosure what happened if we took the death penalty off the table. So with the family and discussion with our prosecutor's office, that agreement was met, and he was brought back to Florida where he gave a full confession to the uh, detective. So in that respect, we were able to give the family, yes, answers. It was a lot for them absorb, but at least they did have some answers. Now, is, uh, being that you brought up the death penalty, do you, are those kind of investigations, are they handled differently, or is it one of those things that, every investigation is handled the same regardless of whether the death penalty is on the table or not? Oh, absolutely. And, and actually the death penalty is not our decision or generally in our jurisdiction. It was not, that was totally up to the prosecutor's office. And in this particular case, they said they often will have that discussion with the family. And I said, that was the decision they made. We, the detectives and I, we had no, no input into that decision. We were okay with that. That's, you know, whatever the family was comfortable with, we were good with. So in any respect, I'll tell you, for me and for the detectives that I had in the unit, we worked every case as if it was a homicide. Every death investigation was handled as if it were a homicide until we could rule that out. Suicides were, you know, investigated thoroughly uh, so that we could, you know, yes, it was in fact a suicide or, okay, we've got something questionable. And of course that deals with, you know, the medical examiner and the autopsies and, you know, it gets down to physical evidence and stuff. So 
So once foul play is ruled out, then, you know, it goes kind of a different avenue than if it is uh, a suspicious death. Now, I guess what would take, what would it, it would it just, it would basically just be the evidence that points you in certain directions, right? You guys try to go in with an open mind without predetermining what had already happened, right? Oh, absolutely. And now it's something I was taught from the very beginning when I went into homicide and it played out time and time and time again. Physical evidence does not lie. People do. And there were several investigations that we had where a detective or two may be sitting down with a possible suspect and our crime scene and forensics people are still at the scene and the suspect will give the detective a story. And we would call the forensics people and go, okay, this is the story that this person is giving us. Is that story plausible based on the physical evidence that you have at the scene? And sometimes they would say yes. Sometimes it'd be absolutely no. And a lot of that dealt with blood spatter analysis and those types of things that, no, that just physically couldn't have happened that way. So again, uh, teamwork, it's not just, and I think homicide detectives are constantly and have been for years and years and years glorified in in television and film, you know, that they're, they solve all the crimes and that's just not true at all. They're just one part of it. They're more or less just the face of the investigation. Correct. That is true. Yes. I don't know. It's just interesting. It's interesting to just listen to the you know, to the whole process and it is a team. It's more or less, I mean, you guys are just one great big team and it's, do you feel like you guys could achieve the same goal without a certain department or is it one of those things that you guys need everybody to achieve whatever the goal is? Well, and and that would be case by case. Sure. I mean, there were some cases that really it was cut and dry. So pretty much, the forensics person assigned that was lead on the case and the lead homicide detective, pretty much the two of them, you know, could handle it, had it locked up and, you know, case was prepared and sent to the the prosecutor's office for cases that were, were in and take multiple casualty or mass shooting. I don't really like that word, but mm-hmm. multiple casualty situations, of course it takes a team. And, and that's another part, you know, you see those things and a lot of people forget about our forensics people. Crime scenes are not processed quickly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they, and a lot of people will see, well, you know, I can't believe how long he let the body lie in the middle of the street. You know, that's just so disrespectful. And I can't tell you how many times over the course of my career I got chastised or questioned. And when we sat down and explained it to people, you know, like, the body's like the last thing that we touched or moved forensics people. If they do their job properly. And again, this is how we did it. I'm sure other agencies may do it a little bit differently, but like they take overall photographs, mid range photographs, close up photographs, those types of things. And, you know, you've got to be careful about, you know, bringing things into the crime scene or removing things. That's why you see people with booties on. That's why you see crime scene tape 
That's why there's logs who comes into a crime scene, you know, at what time they come in and those types of things. So you take a mass casualty, take the Las Vegas shooting or the Pulse nightclub or any of them. Those things take days to process. So your forensics people and, and your detectives, they're seeing it constantly. Mm-hmm. They're measuring it. They're photographing it. They're collecting it. They're stepping over it. They're, I mean, I said those things just take days to do. And that's, it's not an easy job by any means. No. Again, TV doesn't show you that. Of course not. How, being that you, you, you're seeing that death and that, you know, if it's, you know, if there's blood involved or, you know, guts or gore or whatever it is, I mean, how do you not take that home? Or is that something that you have to, and I know every individual is different. Some people are, are better at, at, you know, pushing stuff to the back of their mind when they're at home, when they're not around it. But I mean, that has to affect you even when you go home. Uh. You know, it, it, it does, but I think, I think you just, you learn that it's a job mm-hmm. and, and people think that cops seem so emotionless or, or show lack of emotion. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. They have a job to do. And I can tell you there are times that officers will drive away from something and go park out in under a tree somewhere and, you know, just, you know, let it out. Some will cry. Some will just, you know, scream or, you know, I mean, because it does affect you, you know, obviously anything involving a child, an infant, an elderly person, uh, those really test you. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- those are, those are hard. Is there anything now that you're in retirement that still haunts you or are you, have you for the most part moved past all of that? There's, uh, I went through a time when I first retired mm-hmm. uh, and I think it was fun. It was adjusting number one to going from such high stress and constantly on the go. I mean, it was not uncommon for me to work a minimum 50, 60 hour work week. Mm-hmm. There were times I'd go 30, 40 days without a day off because I was getting called out constantly. Um, and, you know, as the supervisor of homicide unit, I was literally, I had my police radio, I had a home phone, I had a cell phone from work, I had my personal cell phone, I had a pager. I had literally my nightstand was nothing but electronics. Sure. And it was about six months or so after I retired. It was just one day I just, I was walking around the house and I'm like, I'm like, almost like pacing. And I'm like, what is going on? Finally hit me. It's like, I have no stress in my life. And it was like this instant relief that I finally realized that, that, you know, I could actually put a book on my nightstand and not, right. you know, you know, six pieces of electronics or stuff. Um, and I think it's different. Like, I retired and still live in the town that mm-hmm. I spent my entire career. So there were times I would, 
there's so many places in town that I drive by and go, oh, I worked that homicide there, or I worked a suicide there, or I worked a, a death there. And over time, now it kind of brings me peace that, you know, I know, you know, that person is now at peace. That person is in a better place or, um, but I mean, it's still to this day, and I've been retired 15 years will be, uh, yeah, January will be 15 years. So um, it is an adjustment. And I don't know if you, I want to say you live to learn with it or learn to live with it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say uh, I'm, I'm very much supportive of more mental health services and that for people who do any first responder job, whether it's fire or EMS and even our dispatchers, dispatchers are also crucial um, to the whole process. I'm glad to see that the profession as a whole are taking a bigger look and making it more of a priority that, that mental health wellness it is a big part of the job now. Right. And that's, you know, that comes with, you know, any, I guess, high stress environment, you know, being like the military, like I know that they've started to focus more on mental health, you know, and that, that is a very big positive. Cause at the end of the day, you hear those, those sad stories of, you know, unfortunately people going home and either a drinking themselves to death putting their, you know, putting their gun in their mouth. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different, you know, avenues that people take because they feel like they can't open up. And, and I, I do get that. Absolutely. And, and this is one thing and I've heard this so many times from people, even to this day, when people think of PTSD, they think of the military um, and rightfully so. When you talk about PTSD and law enforcement or, or first responders, like, well, you can't have PTSD. You didn't go to war. Yes, one incident can cause PTSD. What generally, and again, this is from what I've been told in, 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 in discussions, it's cumulative. When you deal with these types of situations day in and day out over the course of a 20, 25, 30-year career, and it takes its toll. And anyone who's done any of those jobs that tells me I'm fine, none of it's ever bothered me, they're not being truthful. You can't do these jobs without it having an effect on you as a human being. You just can't. Unless you're, you know, one of those sick human beings, and at that point you need more help than anybody else can offer you. Well, and this is a sad statistic. Last year, more police officers died by suicide than were killed in the line of duty. And that's actually been, I think, that way the last three years, if I'm not mistaken. So there's really been a huge emphasis on that. People are finally recognizing we have a problem in the profession. Right. And that, and like you said, that comes with overtime. I mean, you guys are working, you know, like you said, 30, 40, 50 days on end without a day off 12 to, you know, 16 hours a day and your brain is constantly going or that constant stimulation of death. I mean, eventually you're either going to snap or 
you're going to need help. I mean, there's really, there's no other two ways about it. Well, you know, and it, I mean, and when you talk about death and that people think about, you know, you know, oh, homicide and, you know, murder and all of that, you know, it, it's, you have to look at, you know, traffic fatalities. Those aren't pretty. Absolutely not. You know, so you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with that. You, you know, just an infant death, you know, like a SIDS case or something like that. That's traumatic while it's not violent or has all the gore with it. That's just absolutely traumatic. Uh, a sexual battery victim, I mean, those are, those are tough to deal with. And, you know, so I said, it's not just the blood and guts. And I, I personally, for me, I think dealing with the blood and guts was easier mentally, you know, than, than when you actually are dealing with, with the person or the family. That, that's it's it's hard you know you know a lot of police officers have kids you know so um you know when you when you respond to one of those it, it's it's difficult i don't i really don't know how anyone does that you know day in and day out i commend you know law enforcement for you know being able to have the patience with the general public that they do because you know being you know, working in any kind of customer service, you know that, you know, the general public is not easy to deal with. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, not to really get off track, and I don't think it is, but I had an officer come to me, this is years ago, a very good officer, and then all of a sudden they started getting internal affairs complaints from citizens, and they were all this basic rudeness, which... I could ask you to define rudeness and your definition is probably different than the person sitting next to you, but that's what it was. And they all stemmed from minor traffic accident investigations, every single complaint. And I'm like, okay, tell me what you do when you get on scene and you get out of your car, tell me what you do. And they went through their process and I'm sitting there watching and listening. And it was so, robotic they work so many of these and i'm I, I i hate the word but i'm going to use it for the discussion like a minor fender bender that their process was so routine and so robotic they lost the personal touch so yes it came across as very cold to the people they were dealing with and right. rightfully so and so I reminded them, I said, you know what? I said, for a lot of these people, it's their one and only contact with a law enforcement officer. To them, the $500 damaged bumper, although I, you can't find a $500 bumper, <laughs> now, you know, but, you know, to them, it's a big deal. To them, it's traumatic. They're upset and you have to go back and you have to recognize that you need to go back and think about it from that perspective, from their perspective. Yes. These aren't the most fun things to work and to do, but that's why you do the job. Right. And they sat there and looked at me and they're like, Oh my God, you're right. And sure enough, went back out and they came up to me like months later and they're like, you know, you just, ch I mean, I went back to how, I remember when I first started the job and you reminded me of I'm there to help these people. And 
So, you know, yeah, sometimes officers can get that way and, and you just have to remind themselves, wow, you know, this is this is what my job is. This is why I'm here. And, and it's like, no, not that they did it on purpose. They just kind of lost focus because they it became so routine for them. It's almost like that, that not that they lost the empathy, but it's just, hey, you know what? It's another, it's just another accident. Nobody died. Okay, let's just get this over with so I can, you know, keep going. Correct. I mean, let me get back in service and, you know, be ready for the next call. And, you know, like I said, it was just, it was, it was neat to watch their own light bulb come back on and just go, gosh, you're right. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I can guarantee you there's not an officer who wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I'm going to go kill somebody today. That just doesn't happen. Right. You know, I won't say... Just doesn't because I never say never, but I could almost guarantee you that that that's not anybody's thought process. So I had a question for you. I'm going to play you a little bit. Um, maybe you could help me understand what their role is. Victim advocate Melanie Tudor, Tallahassee Police Department, retired, 23 years of service. So what I know you had touched a little bit on it earlier, but what exactly is a victim advocate? Great question. Not all law enforcement agencies have full-time victim advocate units like ours did. We had a, a fully staffed, we had four full-time victim advocates, all of them with master's degree in social work, uh, which basically all they had to do was take the state test and they'd be licensed therapists. Mm -hmm. Their job is to help victims of crime or families of victims um, that are deceased it's to help them through and navigate the investigative process and the court process. States have different uh, victim rights bills in Florida. Victims are, uh, there's services available for them. They have certain rights as victims of crime. And the victim advocate will help them navigate all of that. So a lot of times our victim advocates, we call them first responder advocates because they actually responded to active crime scenes. And, um, you know, like we've, we've had scenes where a parent, a single parent is killed or dies and we have a child there. They would get with uh, family protective services. They, you know, then we'd find a family member that could come and take, you know, Mm. Uh, a child and those types of things. So they wear a lot of different hats. Um, some agencies have volunteer victim advocates. Like I said, we were we were very fortunate. We had a full time staff, and our local uh, sheriff's department does too. And even our uh, prosecutor's office, our state attorney's office, has a victim advocate unit. So we're we're very very fortunate to have them. And like I said, they are absolutely a part of the team. And I realize the way I talk about how my agency did it and how I did things, that's not, you know, saying that's the end all be all or sure. that's how other agencies do things. Um, that's just what worked for us and worked very, very well. Uh, certainly the team approach did. Do you feel like that in your dealing with other agencies throughout the country that, 
Do you feel like that teamwork is there or do you feel like it's more of a divided division? I really could not answer that. It's really department by department. So uh, there's no way I could answer that question for you. Okay. I I think, especially when it comes to those law enforcement officers who work the road, Mm -hmm. there certainly is that team approach. I think, you know, even when I did, I mean, you look out for each other, you know, you back each other up, uh, those types of things. So, yeah, I mean, you do a lot on your own. And, and I come from an agency where it's one officer per car. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of bigger agencies, they have two people per car. Uh, so it just depends. But it, from my jurisdiction, with one officer per car, it, it was definitely a, a squad slash team effort and even a shift effort and stuff. So I, can, I, I can't really speak to, to what other, other agencies. Or agencies. No. Sure. Okay. And then do you guys like ever deal with like FBI investigations or stuff like that, or where they will come in and help you guys? Or is that, you know, more or less more drawn up just in the media? Um, No, we did work with them, especially with bank robberies. The FBI was always called in and we had a, a local office here, secret service. We had a local office here and we would call them for, any counterfeiting cases, those types of things. That's what they do. We have a state law enforcement agency here called the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. If we needed their services, they would come and help. And some of the smaller agencies in our state actually do utilize them a lot for their homicide investigations. And FDLE has huge state crime labs. There's a couple with throughout the state. We were fortunate to have the big one here in Tallahassee. It's where headquarters is and and being the state capital. So we really got to know a lot of the people over there, but no, we, we did work. Uh, We had a couple of bombing cases, which of course we worked with the FBI. So uh, yeah. And I, and I, unless things have changed, I think that's probably pretty common, especially with secret service and the FBI with, with a lot of other agencies. Is that an intimidating for you guys, you know, being that, you know, the FBI is more on like a, you know, a federal level as to where you guys are on the state. Is that intimidating or is it, you guys are still trying to accomplish the same, whatever the goal is for that case? Oh no, they're not intimidating at all. And I guess too, is we got to know the agents that were here. Mm. So we, we developed that relationship with them. Sure. And especially like with bank robberies and that sometimes federal charges were better than what our state charges could have been. So, you know, those were always part of the discussions and the teamwork. Sometimes they had access to things that we didn't, um, which was beneficial. And same thing, we also worked with uh, DEA, the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, a lot, too. We had a, a big local office here as well. So not intimidating, not for me. And I don't believe I never saw it with any of the detectives that I worked with sure. at all. Did you guys have a lot of, did you ever, well, no, cause you didn't work in narcotics, but did you guys ever have the cases where they kind of, where you had to intertwine your departments to solve the case? Yes. Um, and that's kind of really what, you know, with the bank robbers and stuff, they were really worked jointly. I know our narcotics unit worked and still do a lot of joint trafficking cases and and those types of things they'll work with. And sometimes even those cases can involve 
not just the local agency, but the state agency and the federal agency, depending on how big it is. I, you are teaching me a whole lot. These, this is all stuff that I had <laughs> no idea about. So, um, but we'll get back on subject. What has been your, have you feel like you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish with your books? Yes and no. And I, and I will tell you this too. When I, when I first came up with the idea and started asking the people that are in both books, especially with volume one, when I explained to them why I wanted to do the book, they really jumped on board. And it starts with, for me, with them, I would send them a questionnaire. And there were specific questions that I wanted their thoughts. And I said, you know, I wanted them in writing. Mm -hmm. And what I got back from them was more than I ever anticipated. Every one of them in both books really opened their hearts. And I'm very, I'm very honored that they let me tell their stories. And, and for some, especially in, in the depth that they went, and a lot of them came back to me and told me that it was somewhat healing and therapeutic for them to actually sit down and write out their thoughts. And I said, when the first one told me that, I said, you know what, if I never sell one copy of these books, right. I'll consider them a success just for that response. But like we talked about earlier, the responses that I've gotten from so many different avenues, um, criminal justice uh, groups, I, I've been to a university to talk and mm -hmm. to criminal justice students, family of first responders. And I think it's really opening eyes. And if anything, for me, I hope it continues to open discussion. So, yes, I would say I've accomplished what I initially set out to do. Do I wish the books could reach more people? I guess that would be my further goal. Yes. Have you thought about or are you thinking about doing a volume three? Boy, I've been asked that a lot. <laughs> I am seriously considering it. And in it, I know you've, you've done volume two. Volume one was people that I had worked with or personally knew. So it was pretty clustered into my geographical area. Volume two expanded a little bit. If I do volume three, I've already talked to some people, uh, officers in other states and different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the level that I would take volume three to is to get it out there more. Um, I have an officer in Texas who's on board, an officer who retired from California is now living uh, out on the West Coast or East Coast. And so there, I, that would be my goal for, for volume three if I do it. What about internationally? Would you ever want to bring in a law enforcement agent from, you know, like an international overseas type situation? Yes, I'm considering that. I've, and that's one thing that the, the books have absolutely afforded me uh, some amazing experiences, especially with the speaking engagements. But I've also met some really phenomenal people, uh, uh, some in London, uh, mm -hmm. some in, in Canada. Uh, I just had contact with a gentleman who's in Australia. 
So, yes, uh, that will probably, I'll have at least one and hopefully maybe more that would be outside the United States. I, for one, vote for you to do a volume three. I <laughs> I personally enjoyed volume two. I do need to get around to reading uh, volume one. Are you planning on getting volume one put in Audible? Yes, the person who did volume two has agreed and we're looking at hopefully getting started on that in January after the holidays. After the holidays. So, so yeah, it'll be, yeah. Um, which right now, I mean, as you know, volume volume one and volume two are available in ebook, paperback and hardcover. And then volume two is out there in audible. So uh, I, I really, I did volume two audible first because there were just like, so with Scott's story, I really wanted to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in every format that I could. So, but I, I do want volume one to be an audible, so it will be. Awesome. Now, here's a random question. A random, Uh-oh. just weird question that I feel like that's kind of off subject, but we'll see where it takes us. If you could be any sandwich condiment, which would you be and why? Wow. I think mayonnaise. Why mayonnaise? Mayonnaise kind of goes with a lot of different things. People put it on sandwiches. You could put it on a hamburger. Uh, mayonnaise is in a lot of other things, too. It's in Some people put it in potato salad. Some people put it in other salads. <laughs> so, yeah, that way I could be kind of a little bit of everywhere. Now you're Maybe. not not Miracle Whip though. Well, okay, it's <laughs> I do I do like Miracle Whip, but you know I'm talking about the real thing. So, you're talking but, about the okay. real thing. Yeah, but we'll throw Miracle Whip into the mayonnaise category, sure. Okay, one more random question: Pepsi or Coke? I don't drink sodas anymore, but I used to be a Diet Coke person. You know what? And every now and then I get a craving for a fountain diet coke. Fountain sodas are the best though. Yes, they are. (laughs) I I'm not a huge soda drinker either, but I was pet I was a Pepsi drinker, so I feel like we're mortal enemies now. Uh, Oh okay. Um but if you want to go ahead and plug your book where they can find you at, where they can get a hold of you. Anywhere that you want them to know to be able to get a hold of you. Sure. Thank you. And I appreciate that. The books in all formats are on sale on Amazon. And again, the books are behind and beyond the badge. It's volume one and volume two. And the book covers are very similar. So make sure you really pay attention if you do purchase it. But any bookstore can order the book for you. They're also available on Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million. Again, they'll probably have to order it for you. I have a website. It's behindandbeyondthebadge.com. And I'm on social media. I'm not always a huge fan of it, but I am on it pretty much every day. On Facebook, it's Behind and Beyond the Badge. On Instagram, it's Behind and Beyond the Badge. And on Twitter, which I'm Donna B213 on Twitter. So yeah, I'm out there and you know, you can contact me through the website. Uh, uh, you know, you can email me there through the website. 
if you'd like. And I will link to all of your social medias below. Uh, once I do put out this episode, I will link to all of these um, below. Uh, I also saw something online that you are offering signed copies of the book, which I feel like is a huge enticement for people to have that, you know, that personal touch from the artist. Thank you. Um, and actually those are available, uh, through a different website. Mm -hmm. It's called thin blue line for women.com. And the four is the number four. Mm -hmm. Um, she has a huge store. She sells all kinds of products there, including books. And she asked, gosh, about a month ago, if I'd ship her some, she'd sell them. And so, yes, there, but that's the only place you can get a signed copy unless you wanted to contact me and we, you know, we could work that out somehow and right. I could ship you one. But that right now, that would be the easiest if you want one. All right. Well, Donna, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate sitting down with you. I feel like it's very been a very enlightening interview for me, and I appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me, and I wish you all the best of luck with your podcast. Well, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night, so watch out. Stay safe and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.